Hello everyone and welcome back to What Would The Smart Party Do? This week it's kind of a part two in a way. We got some inspiration from the Frankenstein RPG podcast as they're going through favourite bits of games and spending an episode on each. And we've done a similar thing before in the past, having whole episodes on magic or combat or any other aspect of gaming that you can think about. And we've been rushing back through our vast gaming shelves to look for interesting things, stuff that you might want to check out. Perhaps you might consider uh, necessities for your gaming library if you don't already have them to broaden your horizons. So we've got some new categories, some new ideas, and with me as usual is my good friend Baz. How's it going, Baz? Hello, I am excellent, thank you very much. Good to be back on again, talking about games and all things gaming. Good. I think we've both been playing a variety of games recently, so there's, mm-hmm. there's all manner of things that will be fresh in our mind. But looking back at your grand list of categories of what must go into a role-playing game, what other features are there that we can talk about tonight? So last time, uh, for our regular listeners, you will know that we covered what would, in a fairly trad book, would be the player section. We talked about combat, magic, character generation, kit, all of that kind of stuff. Now we're going to get to the bit in the big trad hardback where there's probably a page that says, if you are going to GM this game, read no further. Which is a bit of an old-fashioned thing. You don't see that too much in books these days. But imagine there is in this virtual one that we're knocking together. So remaining chapters tonight are kind of based around the GM and maybe the wider picture rather than the quite granular stuff that we were talking about last time. So we're going going to take a little scamper through, what, 40 years of gaming history here and our picks of various things. Um, and I'm going to give you the chapter heading, Gaz, and uh, we can just see what, what people think, um, and we can put out our nominations and see what people come back with for what they would suggest as well. Sure, yeah, that sounds great. So, if we were thinking of this as a big virtual book, we know what character we've got, we know how to play, uh, we know how to punch things, jump over things, cast spells at things, all of that kind of stuff, but what we don't have is a setting. Now, I am conscious that there could be about 18 podcasts just in this section alone, but I want to try and narrow it down. So I've got, I've got some rules rules of engagement for you tonight, guys, so you can't oh, go right, back. Right? okay. Okay, now, this one is dear to my heart. I love RPG settings, but I really love them if they are exclusively RPG settings, or at least originally that way. So by that, I mean, much as I love Star Wars, I can't include the Star Wars RPG from a setting perspective because it was a film first. Mm. and the same with the Buffy RPG or any of those ones that have been maybe a book or a licensed property or anything like that and even stuff like you know Marvel Superheroes for example a really nice game but it's based on comics sure. what I like are those settings that came out of the RPG hobby or out of the RPG industry and have maybe turned into something else since but if they originated there then I'm all for it so a classic example would be Glorantha which is not going to be on my list but it's a good example of something that, yeah, people are taking from a board game. But you know what I mean, okay? Mm. That's an RPG yeah. setting, first and foremost. So what what are the games that come either originally packaged or quite early on in their life packaged with the settings that you would love to play in? Some I've got to mention that, I guess. I liked early Glorantha. I'll put it that way, mm-hmm. as in... 80s version or 90s perhaps I think it's just got a bit too convoluted and bloated at the minute for, for a new person I know there's uh, new stuff on the way and a quick start's in the work so that, that might help a little bit but certainly at the time I did like that um, 
there was a couple I was going to mention, and now I think they, they would break your rules. So stuff oh, no. like stuff like Mouse Guard is actually set on a bunch Ooh. of graphic novels, really. But it's a good Ouch. one to check out if you haven't, because it does a good job of uh, the rules integrating with the setting and doing the things the characters do in the comic book. But we can't we can't have that. But I'll give it an honourable mention. Um, perhaps then something like Numenera is a reasonable one from Monty Cook Games. It's guess it's sort of like some of the old novels you used to read, the pulpy ones that were they started off as kind of fantasy and sorcery and then the more you read them you realised actually it's some like fallen civilization and it's actually old technology that people have got and when they had a wand of lightning it was actually a, a ray gun or something like that so Numenera is very much like that, it's, it's kind of sorcery science I guess you call it, or weird and wonderful things uh, and one of the things cool about it is that all the creatures and stuff in the best room that I can think of anyway off the top of my head are all just different, it's all bespoke art uh, so there's no kind of running into the game and going oh it's a bunch of orcs or oh it's mm. a dinosaur or a dark young of even, it's all you put these colourful pictures down because it is all full colour as well which is nice um, people go what the F is that and then you've got to deal with it and I think that's that's one of the things that can really bring a static to life not only having unique stuff in it but being surprising to players and, and presenting them with a challenge because they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know that you shoot zombies in the head as you might do in other things. It's like this is like a, a pinkish blue uh, half luminescent elephant that phases in and out and has eight legs. Like, what do you do with that? <laughs> I, I don't know, but we're going to find out. Um, so that, that's really cool from that point of view. And it's great for storytelling that in the background you can come up with all kinds of wacky gonzo stuff or even not wacky or gonzo, just a bit strange and weird and unnerving perhaps. But you can put all kinds of things into it, and the system's quite simple that goes with it, so that's easy to integrate. And that makes the that kind of sense of exploration and discovery and mystery about things, that brings the fantasy back to fantasy, even though it's kind of, sort of, a little bit, could be post-apocalyptic, could be a bit sci-fi. Mm. So that, that's a really nice setting to look at. And lots of, as I say, uh, like beautiful art in a lot of different books to kind of like leaf through and give yourself inspiration from. And then another one I'll, I'll mention is Nice Black Agents, I like. Oh. It's, well, yeah, a gumshoe-style game uh, about uh, investigating a conspiracy. Spoiler alert, it's vampires. But then it goes <laughs> into multiple different ways about what the vampires are or how they are or, or what the, what the organisation's like or how you fight them. And it's good as a setting because it, it's kind of a toolkit setting that gives you lots of different ideas and ways of setting it up. So you could play Nice Black Agents several times and the conspiracy and who and what vampires are will be completely different every time. So it's got a good replayability uh, facility and because it's multifaceted it means that you're not just buying the book and going oh, I'm not sure they're all like this and I do it like that and then maybe having to think about how you hack it or anything. It, it comes like that already with a set of ingredients that then you set up the setting how you want it to be. So if you like uh, the old TV series that was only on for, I think, for six episodes, Ultraviolet or something, that could be one way of doing vampires, but it can equally be Twilight, or it could be something about uh, Egyptian vampires, or some of the, the aliens, anything. Like, there's like a whole bunch of different things you can do with it. And from a system point of view, it gives a whole load of tools to use in terms of uh, gathering heat and whether the conspiracy knows about you, and uh, extra bits to add on to Gumshoe as well, which means that it's not just... A cool setting, but also comes with some mechanical heft to reinforce the setting in play. Mm. Okay, so uh, just to bounce off what you said there, mate, that's quite interesting. I think you've chosen 
two games I think that are quite exploration based by which I mean you don't actually if you're a player in that game you don't actually have to devour an awful lot of encyclopedic knowledge to start mm. Numenera is kind of like you've got an open world you don't need to know anything everything is about discovery round the corner could be anything and then Knight's Black Agent is ostensibly our world isn't it so mm. <laughs> unless you've never left your house you've got a rough idea what the internet is actually you could do that without leaving the house but you get the idea you know what a 7-Eleven looks like so is that an important thing for you with your settings picks that you maybe they're a little bit homework light uh, exploration based it's definitely a consideration when you're running a game like it's it's easy with something like for example Delta Green which has got amazing background arguably one of the best backgrounds and settings mm. for any kind of like a sort of modern conspiracy game certainly but there's a lot of information there and you have to work out how to drip feed it in a certain way yeah. to your to your players uh, so yes you're right the, the ones I've picked there are ones that uh it's light on players for what they need to know to get into it and then the whole point is that you give them stuff all the time or they discover mm. stuff all the time and I, th I think that is a key feature of whether you consider something to be a good setting or not uh, in, it's in two different modes isn't it like in one way it can be fun to read because people do collect role playing books sometimes but if you're going to play it you want to know how you're going to get the information out of your head and that book and onto the table and into players heads yeah 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 and importantly, in Numenera, there's a location called Baz, which I find exciting. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. I'll let you look it up, but it's an artificial intelligence. Is it a goodie? Is it a baddie? Go find out. Look it up. Uh, okay, right. Well, let me hit you with a couple of mine then. Um, and they're going to spin from yours a little bit. Um, I think I'm right in saying Numenera is called the Ninth World. I think that's what Monty Cook refers to it as. Yeah, there have been eight other worlds before this that have collapsed, ah. and this is the ninth iteration of... A civilization. Fantastic. So uh, I'm going to subtract three from that and go back to the sixth world, and I'm going to give you Shadowrun, which I think we're, is going to be like a right old Marmite choice here <laughs> for an awful lot of the audience. So I think you were either Cyberpunk 2020 or you were Shadowrun back in the 90s when cyber things were a thing. Mm -hmm. and, and a couple, <laughs> maybe two people were into Cybermaster. I don't know. Uh, but Shadowrun. Do I need to tell you what Shadowrun is? Let's do this. Shadowrun is essentially everything, all stuck into a great big pot. Uh, in the interest of excitement, thrills, more colours than you can shake a stick at, and probably hoping to get some increased sales. Let's be honest, Fassa was looking to get a little bit of the D&D audience for its near future game, set uh, in a world about, oof, it's about 50 years in the future, roughly speaking. Um, and they filled it with goblins and dragons and elves and magic, as well as uh, cyber decks and mega corporations and really big guns and cyberware. So it had a little bit of everything. And I think, you know, another game that was a bit similar to that was Rifts, which I never particularly got into, but Shadowrun, I really liked it. And I think I enjoyed the idea of Shadowrun more than the implementation of Shadowrun. I don't think that's a controversial statement. I mm. think it's it's one of those classic games that's been hampered by its system. But seeing as we're talking about purely setting, what a joy it was to read some of that stuff. And especially because it had some nice iconic characters running through it. It was from the era when there was an awful lot of fiction blended into your rule books as well. Yeah. Chapter openings, entire chapters for that matter. So there would be lots of in-character stuff with uh, with Deckers speaking to you. It had its own slang. It had a system, uh, sorry, a setting that would move on in time. So much like some of the other offerings from FASA, every year that passed in our world, 
in that fantasy world it would move forward a year as well so I have no idea what the year is in Shadowrun right now but it won't be the game that I remember from back in the day mm. and the icing on the cake for many people was the fact that when Earthdawn came out from the same company its setting was linked in the loosest of ways to Shadowrun but, but the links that they were um, especially with elves and immortal stuff like that and it gives me a chance to segue neatly into Bar Save. They came from the same company, but Bar Save, which uh, there are more podcasts from us on this than than anyone needs to have, <laughs> but it is the fantasy setting that was designed to be played in. It was the fantasy setting that it did spawn novels and interesting fiction and loads of games, but it was written to play games in, not like Lord of the Rings obviously wasn't written to play games in but you know if you want to play in Lord of the Rings you have to try and pull it into your game it wasn't this way at all things happened for loads of different reasons and it had it wasn't afraid of the fact that it was uh, the people were playing games with it mm. from from uh from the fact that you would refer to character classes by character class in the setting as well as around your table to spending of legend points as in building your legend and actually writing down your character journals and installing them in their library that would play part in the setting as well and then they got to play around with all of that sort of secret history as well so there was so much stuff there which normally I would recoil from too much stuff too much reading too much effort and you know what maybe if it was presented to me fresh today I would step away from it Mm -hmm. but I think we got into Earth Dawn from day one, and Shadowrun I played from second edition up, and it just didn't seem too onerous then. Um, so I, I have huge fondness for that setting, and I would happily jump back into it and and maybe grab some books and just read them for the fun of it. I don't think I'd play it, but I would love to jump back into those settings. They're places I could imagine myself wandering around in and sightseeing. Yes. So they're my, my initial picks. No, I think that's fair enough. I think you know I'll be in furious agreement about Earth Dawn and Bar Save. <laughs> uh, Shadowrun, uh, Shadowrun's a weird one because I, I played a lot of Shadowrun, especially at university, but yeah. I, I'm not that bothered about having you know, like dwarves and elves in my cyberpunk games. But I think the setting was so strong that mm. um, I, I liked it anyway. Uh, and things I, I can't remember. Like I'm sure there's a couple of bits where they had votes for things. I know yes. that a dragon ended up as mayor of one of the cities, and I can't remember whether that was oh, like a president. Actual president, that, that yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the first kind of dipping your toes into getting people involved in what they wanted in their game and that kind of thing. Mm. But yeah, so you can that's that's I think a good example of a setting doing something uh, bold and interesting. So it's not just having troll street samurai. It's like a dragon's president. What does that look like? And mm. just you know, really kind of like if you're gonna have weird fantasy creatures in your futuristic cyberpunk game then really push it and see what that would mean in reality mm. yeah well worth a look it's it's inspired a lot of things and Shadowrun is still very much an ongoing thing probably because of its setting I don't think anyone's hung around for every single system iteration and even its most devoted fans are probably not there for the skill trees I'm going <laughs> to guess so you know it's it's a good one to probably look through the, uh, the Wikipedia articles on isn't it mm. if nothing else Cool. Yeah. What else have you got from setting, mate? Because as I say, we could go on and on with this one, and I have more. <laughs> I'm not leaving it at Shadowrun, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't know whether I just use it as a blanket thing, but so the free league games we mentioned them a lot, but certainly Tales from the Loop and Things from the Flood are great. Uh, but I'm going to mention them possibly to the category, so I won't dwell on them too long now. But one I'm playing at the minute, I just started playing again, is uh, Vessen, which is a Swedish. 
fairy tales, I guess you would call it, which like most people are probably scratching their heads and thinking, what does that look like? But it's kind of in industrial revolution sort of time, so that tension between people moving to the cities from being rural and technology is taking over and the old ways are dying off and the science versus scepticism and uh, suspicion and superstition and all that kind of stuff. So you think of it like there's elements in that could be Sherlock Holmes or could be a Victorian ghost stories or seances or things like that. Uh, and it just has an extra bit for me. I don't know whether this happens to people who are in Sweden. Maybe they just think it's regular. But being someone from England, it being set in Sweden just makes it that little bit more weird and fey and strange and odd. Uh, and I think it's a, a delightful little setting to read through. And what's cool about it from a player point of view as well is that you start out and you're gifted a castle. There's some uh, woman in uh, an insane asylum, a sanatorium, and she gives you this key and she says, okay, you guys are the new special ones and here you go. And you've kind of got a castle to explore which you level up as you kind of go through the game. And you frequently get letters from people saying there's weird things happening, come and, come and help <laughs> us sort it out kind of thing. And each of the different face and the, the sort of fairy creatures you meet has got their own strengths and weaknesses and weird things going on with them. And again, as I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm hearing that I'm going into that exploration thing, exploration thing again. <laughs> you are a bit, yeah. But it's, it's a good mix of having some familiar, if you imagine kind of Victoriana, mixed with a slightly different country and a slightly different culture and, you know, weird things happening and you have to work out how to deal with them. And I think there's, there's a good balance there of some familiarity and some quaintness and some like looking back at Victorian times from the UK point of view and, and having some idea of rooting yourself there, then mixed with some weird other stuff that goes on that then makes it more interesting. Mm. Yeah, I've played Vason once, would play again, definitely. It's, uh, it's slightly adjacent to the kind of worlds that we no normally play in. Uh, based on another country's folklore makes it very, very interesting and unique from, mm. from our perspective. Sure. Yeah, good call, mate. Good call. Right, I've got a couple on here that I will just skim, and then I'm going to go for something a bit more left field, just in the interest of being interesting, really. Um, I do want to mention the old world for Warhammer. Oh, yeah. Simply because mm. I had so many good times in it. But I think perhaps, perhaps I'm not going to dwell on it, because as Games Workshop have realised, it's not particularly original. <laughs> Bless them. It's... It's, it's got elves and dwarves and halflings. It's nicked to the alignment system from Michael Moorcock. Yeah. Uh, it's got, it's, on a sketch map of Europe, it's kind of, <laughs> shouldn't really work. And probably they should have had their arseholes sued off of them back at the time. So even Games Workshop has realised that the old world, it is brilliant. I love the old world, but I'm, I don't want to talk about it too much in this cast because it is kind of an amalgamation of loads of other bits and pieces that mm. have been lifted from elsewhere and made their own but you know there's there's stuff like Skaven and the Chaos Gods which are lovely unique creations um, but it is still dwarves and elves and halflings in woods and hills and rivers and so you know it, it's not going to get as much of a mention as other games I want to talk about unless you have anything you're burning to say about the old world mate no no I love it I, I agree with you totally that, like, there's so much of it that's like nicked from somewhere else and it could easily be a Frankenstein monster in its own right, which you look at and you'd see all the stitch mm -hmm. marks and bolts sticking out of his neck and think, well, that's a monstrosity. But for some reason, it just works. It just gels. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And for the same reason, I'm going to gloss over the Dragon Empire, which comes as 13th Age. The interesting part about that being that it's a, a part-baked setting. 
Mm. Um, and that doesn't mean half-baked in the way that we would use it in the UK. That's kind of a slur, isn't it? You say something's half-baked. Think of it instead as those lovely rolls that you get from the supermarket that you need to put in the oven for another eight minutes, and then they come out and you've got hot bread, and there's not much better than that. <laughs> so they're part-baked. So what it means is it's called the Dragon Empire because it's a really generic word, and it's got like an elven wood, and it's got dwarves that live in the mountains, and it's got like a sea in the middle, and all of the big cities are conveniently one day's travel away from each other on a boat. <laughs> but because it's written by Jonathan Tweet and Rob Heinsu, it's full of madness as well. You've got Koru Behemoths who just go on this massive circuit around the whole world trampling on things with cities on their backs and cloud giants that live in castles made out of literally clouds. And you know, all of this is done in such a succinct manner that you can turn to the gazetteer and there'll be no more than two or three sentences usually about any one of the things on this giant map but each one could probably spring a campaign out of it in fact you have to because they just don't give you any more it's a part bait setting and makes no sense at all without your efforts so for that reason i won't speak about it anymore because there is so much that you have to bring to it it will pay you dividends if you do so but in this massive book of virtual settings there are other things I want to consider first. Sure. I think, just quickly, as we mentioned, Jonathan Tweet, then we should probably mention Over the Edge, mm. which is full of absolute madness. Uh, and again, <laughs> like, there's, there's no way we can do it justice without doing half an hour on it. So I will leave it at that, listeners. If you if modern-day conspiracy and weird and wonderful stuff appeal to you, go and get Over the Edge and just read it, and yeah. there'll be a million ideas in there. Yeah, quite right. So the one that I wanted to do a slightly deeper dive into, which is, uh, I think, massively overlooked as far as a great setting is concerned, is Feng Shui, or Feng Shui. Pronounce it how you will. I don't think it matters terribly much. I'm going to get it wrong no matter how I do it. So uh, Feng Shui is, uh, is a game from the 90s, as all the best games are. And Feng Shui 2, uh, Back to Kick Ass, uh, was very successfully kickstarted just a few years ago now. So there's a couple of versions of this. And they do share, roughly speaking, the same setting. They, it was updated a bit for the second one to yeah. make it a little bit more 21st century. But broadly, you get five settings in one book. So you have four time junctures, one in the future, three in the past. And you also then have a fifth setting, which links them all together as well. And it's based on just, if you had to do this, if you were doing this yourself, um, and you were, had a blank sheet of paper and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to do a game that's got five time periods in it or four time periods and one connecting time period. You just wouldn't have picked these. I just don't think anybody else would have come up with these ones. They are just naturally really interesting. And just like you were talking about with Vason, I think because this is based on Hong Kong cinema, it's a little bit adjacent to my everyday experience, to say the least. And that just brings a really good touch to it of the fresh, the interesting, the new to me. Um, I don't know what it would be like if I were raised in Hong Kong. Maybe it looks hackneyed and old. I doubt it, though, because it's Robin Laws wrote it. And there is just madness. You've got battle apes from the future. You've got like weird lotus-eating eunuchs from the distant past. You've got transformed animals. You have the netherworld. You have these fighting mandarins. Uh, and this is all mixed in with like Michael Bay movies and the, the guys from Lethal Weapon running around with their, with their quota quote factor on 11. People dismiss Feng Shui or overlook it, I think, because it is known for its highly cinematic combat sequences and its detractors would say that's all it's got, but it would be nothing without the settings. Mm. I don't think 
there are people playing that many games where they don't use the setting for Feng Shui because there is so much to it. And it really is ingrained as well. Anything you do in one of the time junctures has effects on the other one. It's a game that you can win by trying to control Feng Shui sites. It's a, it's a lovely piece of setting work, uh, which I think has just got such a good combat system over the top that people don't often see past that to see what a glory it is. For sure, yeah, I agree with all that. I mean, it, technically, it comes from the card game Shadowfest, so oh, yeah. you might have broken yeah. your own derivative rules, but who knows? <laughs> we'll, we'll let you off. I, I think one of the good bits is there has been an updates to the junctures now. Um, mm. In the in the far future, once someone sets off a massive chi bomb and turns it into an apocalyptic wasteland, which it wasn't before, uh, but they do also write in stuff like you know your own mini junctures that pop in and pop out again. You don't know how long they're going to last for. So just to give the GM license to set something in a different time period if you've got some cool ideas. And the other bit of the setting that's cool is all the different factions who are trying to control these Feng Shui sites and therefore control history and change what the future looks like. And as they do things, their fortunes wax and wane and the world changes around you as well. So there's good opportunities for changing what a particular juncture looks like if you want. The players could go into the netherworld and pop out in modern world and because of something they've done or the bad guys have done you could change what the current day looks like and mm. you know maybe donald trump's president of the world and you need to go back in time and sort that out or some other crazy thing you want to do but uh, the the bit that ties into the junctures is the factions and the fact that what they're doing interacts with each other and what the players are trying to do as well so you can you can have lots of moving parts and keep things changing and interesting which is really cool Yes, it's the best one-shot game that doesn't get played as a campaign enough. Mm. Yeah, great. Okay, have you got any others, mate? Um, I'm happy on settings for now. Obviously, I could go along my entire shelf, but let's let's not do that. Uh, do you know, we could, couldn't we? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna push a couple back, maybe for a supplementary cast. Maybe we'll do another little one for the patrons. Maybe go right into the weeds. I'll just say that if you want to hear more about Progenitor listen in and become a patron because maybe I'll just do half an hour of gushing about that and no one will understand it on our big cast so we'll move on to another chapter shall we Let's do we, reluct we reluctantly turn the pages on our 400 page virtual book Let's get, blow the dust Let's get an extra 200 pages for the backers at this rate <laughs> yes absolutely yeah kickstart it for more chapters <laughs> right okay so we've got ourselves a setting fantastic we've got a bunch of stuff going on how about those chapters that tell you how to run the game? Now, in our virtual game, this is going to be a nightmare because we've got character generation from, well, I don't, we didn't even pick, did we, in the end? We were just giving a bit of a, a smorgasbord of options, but you've got a right old mix at the moment. However, I think that games really benefit from a fantastic how do you run this game section, which might be called the GM's chapter, it might be the resources bit, it might be the bit that's full of foes and monsters. There's always something some games don't do very much with it some games do a great deal with it um, and that how to gm chapter is usually pretty portable between the best games so i'm sure with some of the picks we've got for this chapter it doesn't matter whether you're going to play the game it came from or not but this is like where are the words of wisdom out who should we copy paste into into our frankensteinian confection mate yeah, I was potentially going to come at it from a different angle. Like I think a lot of the good advice comes from a small press games, for example. Mm -hmm. But quite a bit of that's not necessarily portable, although some is, because a lot of the advice in those games is about playing that particular game, which I think is a key thing. It would arguably be better if more games gave GM advice about that game and not about how, how to be a great GM generally. 
in all role playing games. Uh, so that's that's an interesting one. Um, things like Blades in the Dark and Apocalypse World have uh, have got some good pieces that you can pick out. Uh, things like be a fan of the players and put the enemies in the crosshairs and and all those kind of bits and pieces. Or if we look at something like Hot War, which I've talked about quite a bit recently. Uh, I was reading through the GM advice section on that again. I was just nodding at every single paragraph. I think I put some on Twitter. It's just like, this is all good stuff. This is all stuff that all GMs should be looking at and doing. So I definitely recommend picking up that for like a tenner or something, less than that probably on, on drive through. Uh, I think as well, if you want to like partic- pick a particular genre, for example, something like Dead of Night, which good friend of the show, Andrew Kendrick wrote, uh, there's a good section there about horror games and how to them because that's what that game's about and there's a whole different bunch of styles of horror game you could run and there's chunks in there from like Scott Dowd who's a great convention uh, ref about how to construct your scenario and how to bring the horror and you know how to present your game and all that kind of stuff so arguably I think I, I might leave the big generic advice from, from your picks if, you, if you've got them there I'm more keen yeah. I think on the getting advice specific to the game you want to run rather than generic advice how, how does that sit that sits perfectly well i think you can have both i think you kind of have to have both to an extent depending on the game that you've got uh, but when you're going into the smaller publications like you were talking about i think the assumption is already there that this is probably not the first role-playing game you've ever picked up sure so you're building off of received wisdom you may have had from elsewhere having said that I've always considered Apocalypse World as a really good beginner's game. That if you had no other game... Yeah, I really do. I think that old grognars like me, and maybe you, mate, I won't speak for you, speak for yourself, but one of the things that kind of makes that kind of dissonance when you're reading it and you kind of squint at it and go, what? And you're holding the book upside down and sideways trying to figure out how to play it, is because we've been brought up on D&D RuneQuest Traveller et al. And the games like Apocalypse World are actually written for people who have never role-played before, in a way, because they just take a, such a fresh approach at it and they tell you exactly what to do. Vincent Baker writes in a very direct manner and says, do this, now it's your go, you're the MC. this mm-hmm. is what you have to do. And I know that I did this, and I'm sure other people do, they kind of gloss over and go, it's all right, you don't need to tell me how to GM, mate, I've been doing this long enough, yeah, shut up, where's the, where's the monsters, is there a scenario in the back of this? Oh, hang on, what's going on? What? Hey, what? And we didn't get it because we didn't read it with that completely fresh, open mind. So the trouble with GM advice is a lot of it sticks. You read enough books and you play enough games and you think you know it all. Or you think you know it well enough to run your games. But I do believe that, that Powered by the Apocalypse, certainly, Blaze in the Dark as well, are actually really good picks. I would love to see what happened if some 14-year-old picked that up in the way that I got hold of basic D&D and self-taught themselves from just that book and maybe some internet resources and just played. I wonder what their games would look like. I think they would be fantastic. I think they'd be messy. I think they'd be glorious. Mm. And just imagine, you know, if they weren't like wandering about, wandering about wandering monsters or (laughs) things like that or or weird ideas about balance or having combats, etc. Their games would just look like, I don't know what they'd look like, but they'd they'd be rare and precious things. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I think that's that's, that's very fair, and mm. and those sort of games, and that's, that's one of the things I was trying to push about small press is it's like, do this. It's like it literally tells you how to run the game. Yeah. It's not like, um, general advice on what you might want to do. It's like literally telling you like do these things, sure. and I think 
arguably, if games are part instruction manual, that's what they should do. They should be saying, this is how you play the game. Do this. Uh, if you want to deviate from that after you try playing it, that's great. But, you know, it's, it's all part of that, like, how do I get the designer tent out? What, what am I supposed to be doing? What's, it, what's that look like? What's the idea behind this game? If you can do that first, then you can make your own ideas up. But what you really want in, in the first instance is a really strong idea about how to run the game, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It really is. I, I've, you know, I buy a lot of games, uh, some very, very new games, some very old games. And, and it's suddenly, when you start noticing the, the advice that comes in, in fairly trad big releases these days, you just get to see how cut and paste it is from received wisdom from way, way, way back in the day that actually probably wasn't even valid then and it's less valid now. Well, there's no advice at all. It's just you've got your character generation, you've got your setting, you might have some monsters, possibly a scenario, and then it just you turn the next page, there's a character sheet and an index. Hmm. And at no point has, have the designers of the game actually spoken to you as a reader and said, this, is, this will definitely work if you play it like this, this one you can do it but be careful because the wheels might start to fall off and with these other ways you might want to play it there are no guarantees but you go ahead and have fun you know it, it's these games are often play tested but are they gm tested and if they are <laughs> where's the advice for the gm <laughs> so on that basis my, my big nomination for this section is gonna be a game i don't play but i have nothing but admiration for the way it addresses the gm and that's the gumshoe system you've already talked about Knights Black Agents from a setting point of view uh, invented by Robin Laws so again the pedigree is going to be right there isn't it there's a man who knows the the uh, the pedagogy of, of gaming the ludology of gaming yeah. uh, he definitely understands it and you could take the whole gumshoe line as nothing but GM advice in that it's there to fix a problem that he sees in investigative games of, uh, of things just grinding to a halt due to a poor skill check uh, or bottlenecks or what have you so he wrote an entire game around that issue and the gumshoe system is essentially advice to any investigative GM of how to run an investigation and it's gold advice whether you play gumshoe or you don't play gumshoe the advice is absolutely there I think the advice works for Call of Cthulhu frankly but it works <laughs> for you know any of those investigation games too and there's been all kinds of little swings at it and little different takes and what have you and with every iteration of gumshoe someone else has like chipped in like ken Hyde did with knight's black agents uh, like kevin culp has done with time watch and swords of the serpentine uh, like gareth Ryder hanrahan does with anything he touches he puts his like this is how it really works at a table kind of stuff and mm. brings it back to like you know the convention space that we know so well yeah so it's absolute gold and you know that these games have had the heck played out of them and there's some very considered analysis of how to get the most out of what is actually quite a tricky system to get your head around in a weird kind of way, despite its simplicity. So gumshoe for me, for GM advice. Yeah, that's that's cool. Um, I'd, I'd, uh, I mean, there's a million I could mention. I'd, I'd definitely recommend, if you haven't, maybe not. you don't fancy playing small crash games so much, and you're a Pathfinder 2 guy, I don't know. But um, I definitely recommend diving into some small press games. Just look at the smaller publishers. Um, things like Agon, which we've mentioned, we played a bit recently. That could look, if you're used to a DMG or something, like quite sparse. But the, the things you need to do to run that game are explicitly in there and explained once. And you're just told. And it can feel a bit intimidating. I guess games like Mothership are like this as well, where 
you almost look at him and think, where's the rest of it? Like I saw in um, one of the Slack groups recently, someone was asking, who's a game designer himself? But he was asking, like, oh, what, do you think there's a GMs book coming out for Mothership? I was like, I, I really don't think there is. Uh, there's a Discord channel, uh, things tend to be these days, and you can go on there and ask advice, but what I've seen time and time again there that happens is you can have some advice, and everybody's friendly and helpful will try, but ultimately it comes down to people saying, look, just run it, it'll be fine. Like, literally, like just run it like the book says and you'll, you'll find your own fate, you'll be great, don't worry about it. Mm. And I've not seen anyone yet come back and go, oh my God, it was terrible, it was a disaster, I didn't know what to do, it all fell apart. Maybe people don't come back and say that if it happens. <laughs> <laughs> but based on the evidence that I've seen, at least, uh, the way to do a lot of these things is just do what they say. And it, it, it can feel like you haven't got the training wheels necessarily, and you are worrying about chapters that exist in other books that you don't get in these. But you don't really need them, I don't think. You just do what it tells you to do, and and something good will happen. And I think that's mm. that in itself is a bit of GM advice I'll throw out there. It's like you know, just just try playing it and running it as as written, and then that the rest will come. I've I've certainly experienced that whenever I tried to GM Fate. Uh, it's I have to say it's not the game for me. I don't think, but it's definitely a game that I blew by trying to run it in the way that I'd run other games previously. And I read it and enjoyed it. And but the GM's advice in there—it's not advice, is it? It's GM's instructions, <laughs> and um, and they're a joy to read as well. Pick up Fate Core. I mean, if that still counts as smallish press, I don't know. But there's plenty of other Fate variants out there. But the way that Fate manages its advice to the people who want to play Fate, you really do have to read it because it can it can take your head sideways uh, into weird kind of places, and you can definitely overthink it, overanalyze it. I did definitely. The best GM advice I got for playing for Fate was off forums and podcasts. And maybe that's where all the great GM advice is these days, rather than nestled in the book to be skipped over. Maybe it is in the hands of the community and the people who've taken it to actual people and played it with them and are reporting back from the front lines. Yes. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But it's, maybe. Mm, maybe. Yeah, it's interesting because sometimes I watch YouTubes of actual players and think, you've not read the book. Or oh, they don't seem to be like the way it's being run isn't what the book says and I find that very curious uh, so I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll reiterate it again <laughs> for everybody out there those at the back but play the game run it and then then you'll have some meaningful questions that's when you know what you want to ask because before you actually run it you don't know what you don't know and I think that that's the secret follow, follow what the book says and if you've still got questions then you've probably got some useful questions to ask I think if you've got a few quid kicking around and you are looking for something to simply read and to get you thinking. If you want generic GM advice, Your Best Game Ever by Monty Cook Games is a quite a big collection of essays that goes into very specific elements of everything about gaming, from, from what snacks you should have at the table <laughs> to how to deal with problem players and, and all the usual stuff that you would expect. It's obviously because it's written by about 40 different authors. I don't think it's possible to like it all, but it's impossible to hate it all as well. There'll be stuff in there for everyone. And that's well worth a look if you want to look at a sort of an essay-based elements that, that cover a wide gamut of approaches. Your best game ever, Monty Cook Gaming. You get, get it on PDF, take it on holiday. Yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. Good chat. Right. Short chapter, this one. Sometimes missing from book CGM advice. Sometimes it's not there at all, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking one of the bullet points from part four and knowing when to shut up. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Well, this will get you. This will get the, the the juices flowing for you certainly. So, this is again a section you do not see in every book, but you definitely used to. 
and so I'm going to open up my own rules so I'm going to give you a little bit of leeway here guys you may need it I needed it when I was sort of thinking about my list here scenarios now back in the day every book used to come with a scenario in it not exclusively but a lot did and that's not always true now but I think we can look at a game to see what is its scenario support like can you get adventures for it at all and if you can who are the best ones to go for what what are the game lines that really support the gms and players who want to buy something open it up at the table for a friday night and get gaming with some really good high quality content in front of them so where are we going to go guys to get inspiration for actual playable content in our big book i thought this was going to be scenarios when you started talking about it yes every game should come with a scenario a good one that demonstrates the rules we rant about this, and we used to. We've been quiet on it for a little while, but it's well worth ranting about again. I think the good thing that's happening these days is people are starting to introduce quick starts or starter sets and things like that, aren't mm. they? So even if there's not a scenario in the book itself, you get one afterwards. So that's good. So any company does a starter set with more adventures and intro stuff, cool. Well done. Carry on. You're the good guys. In terms of other scenarios, if you want to go old school, you can look up Pendragon. I've been running that recently. People always bang on about the Great Pandragon campaign. And actually, that's just a trot through Mallory. So you might as well buy his novel and read that. There you go. Done. <laughs> but a much better support comes from looking at Savage Lands, The Spectre King, Perilous Forest. There's a bunch of old school scenarios, books, uh, in an old fashioned way that some have like bits of adventures in, some have proper scenarios, some have linked adventures. There's one that has a bunch of stuff about the tournaments that might happen. Uh, they're all of the time, so if you are going to play a Pendragon, I'll warn you that you will have to uh, massage those scenarios because they are not what they might be in the modern world. Uh, but a good range of stuff. So that's good. Take VG. Another one that's been mentioned, Gareth, is the One Ring. So I know there's going to be a new edition of that coming out, but there's an old set of adventures there. And one of the first books written by Gareth that came out was great because it had a bunch of different scenarios in it. And I think that's useful. Certainly for the One Ring, it demonstrated at least four different ways you could run a campaign of the One Ring. Now, some people like a scenario book to all be linked or to be part of an overarching campaign or all be the same style, but I think it's actually more useful in many ways to have a bunch of different adventures. And as you're saying about the, your previous book, some you won't like and some you will kind of thing, but that then instructs you on how you might want to run your campaign by trying different styles out. So that's really cool. And of course, anything that Gareth Riderhand has written for, you should go and buy, because that'd be great anyway. <laughs> so keep an eye on the new one ring when that comes out, but you can probably get the old books quite cheap here and there nowadays. So worth a look. Uh, another one that had, I'm trying to think of the word for it now, but like Smuggers Board wasn't what I was thinking, but we'll use that again, of adventures is Unknown Armies. Uh, certainly from the oh. older iterations. I think it was called Jailbreak, was a good scenario about mm -hmm. um, some people trapped in a house in a storm and there's been a prison break and some of your criminals and some of your people at the house of the house there's something weird going on and again in the anthology series there's a bunch of different adventures they give you all kinds of different things you could possibly do with unknown armies and the setting books normally have some adventures around a particular sect or a faction or that kind of stuff and there's campaign books around people trying to change America by giving them burgers and doing nice things for them all kinds of weird and wonderful things, but again, a good variety of anthology scenarios in Unknown Armies, if you look back in the back catalogue, which is cool. 
We've mentioned the old world, so it's only right and proper to mention Warhammer. They're redoing the Enemy Within campaign, which is a big old beast. But if you don't want to tackle that straight away, or you've done it to death, there are a great big bunch of Ubersrack adventures. So there's a nice little starter set, which gives, sets you up nicely, and then at least half a dozen different scenarios in and around Ubersrack to do different things. So again, a good selection of stuff, and it's a rough night at the Three Feathers. I want to say, mm. guessing at the title. That's again another book that's it's older adventures, but a mixture again to give you a different idea about what you might do. So they're cool as well. And I'll swing back as my pause for this section at least to give you a chance to speak. If not, I've more. <laughs> um, we've mentioned the One Ring and Vessel and stuff like that. I think they're good for not only giving some scenarios. So Tales from the Loop, for example, has a four part campaign or mini campaign with each one set in a different season so it's got a different thing to it but they're all linked over the uh, a year of playing and I think that's a nice touch again to give different flavours to scenarios so um, a bunch of different ones there and as I say what I do like initially anyway if your first scenario book for a game line is if it's got some variety to give you a different idea about how you might want to play that game those are very interesting picks and there's a lot of the stuff you mentioned that I do not own um, I guess because you're going to run them for me one day <laughs> so I don't buy them but um, yeah some really interesting picks there uh, and I wouldn't have thought of all of those so that, that's fascinating my picks are kind of some of them go back in the day a little bit as well in fact my first pick is not really possible to go back much further because I'm going to pick Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Blimey. not just Dungeons and Dragons Advanced Dungeons and Dragons for the Advanced game. we don't do Bears around here do we <laughs> no we don't no 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 so no amateur gaming just for the pros AD&D because that's where the word module came from and the vast majority of those modules are still very possible to get and clearly clearly there was a lot of D&D landfill back in the day sure. and today for that matter yeah. but <laughs> all of the adventures that everybody knows were done for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons whether it be Tomb of Horrors which is you know, it's a terrible adventure. It just is. You know, don't yeah. at me, but it is a terrible. But it's a classic. Um, but at the same way, though, you've got Temple of Elemental Evil, and you've got the Halls of the Giant King, and Vault of the Drow, Village of Homla, uh, even Keep on the Borderlands, etc., etc. And and you know, people will be smiling or wincing as I go through those names. But I could do this for another ten minutes, and everybody knows the ones I'm talking about. Bone Hill. You know, expedition oh, to barrier oh, peaks. So, yeah, so many, so many, and a lot of it is going to be nostalgia. But that was when a game really did know that what you needed was something to play, and it's amazing how that lesson has sometimes been lost throughout the years, throughout virtually the whole of the nineties. If you were into World of Darkness, they didn't give you anything to play with. Um, AD and D made sure, and D and D as well, for that matter that you actually had something you could buy on a fairly regular basis. Pretty slim, you know, the uh, the Giants, uh, the first Giants module is eight pages long, I think. It's absolutely jam-packed with stuff, though. And it gave everybody those shared experiences. Everybody's been to the Caves of Chaos. Everyone's been to the Barrier Peaks. Loads of people have been to the Desert of Desolation, etc., etc., etc. And there were, well, there must be thousands by now. I was going to say hundreds, but I dare say that it might have got into the thousands if you continue that line through everything that D&D does. It is certainly not shy of giving you adventures to play. And it usually does put something in the book, usually in the Dungeon Master's Guide or something like that. 
but you know the adventures are so accessible and there are so many of them and don't forget dungeon magazine was around for a very very long time which which put out four or five adventures every single month there's no way you can have played them all by this point but i wanted to include it because it was a game that was so well supported and i think there is a reason why games don't do that anymore in fact i know there's a reason why games don't do that anymore but i wonder if that level of support is what made D&D the D&D that it is today and that's why it's still the industry leader, the hobby leader, it's 90% of everything because it was just so easy to get a game and still is there's, there's maybe something to pencil in for another podcast Yeah, but I'll, I shall move on from AD&D and I shall get right up to date by talking about Call of Cthulhu I thought you were going to say 5th edition d and <laughs> <laughs> I am, I'm feeling quite proud of myself for recommending a lot of stuff that I don't actually play. It doesn't mean that I've never played it and I don't know what I'm talking about because that would be a ludicrous thing to do on a podcast. Why would you do no, no crazy person would do that. I've played a lot of Call of Cthulhu. But one of the things I've always massively admired is the adventure support. And much like AD&D, we could rattle off some names here and everybody will know the ones we're talking about. Mars of Nyarlathotep, you know, Walker in the Wastes, all the way up to the Delta Green stuff that you love so mm. dearly, you know. Um, the Haunting, you know, just that absolute classic. Call of Cthulhu has always had, usually two or three, if I recall rightly, adventures in every core rulebook. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many times I've had that floating knife scare the bejeebus out of people <laughs> as they end up being pushed out of windows and all of that kind of stuff. The Call of Cthulhu is made for adventures. I've, I've got loads of them. Um, I've read them. I've played them. Uh, I've not always loved it but you've got to admire the sheer amount of adventures material that's put out there. I think you could happily play Call of Cthulhu for a very long time without actually touching the core rulebook because you can almost play them out of those big hardbacks, can't you? Yeah. So I have gone I've gone back to some right old classics because I think, you know, they deserve a mention. But those those two games, Advanced Dungeon Dragons, Call of Cthulhu were adventure generating machines for decades. So they get my vote. Yeah, I think probably the thing I can mention there, like Delta Green, I was going to mention. So you've 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 handily ticked that box for me, so to speak. Mm. There's some good campaigns coming through for that now, and lots of individual adventures. So that's cool, and great community support as well. I think that's what I was going to say about D and D when you're saying they're perhaps not putting out adventures like they used to, but then there's DM Skill putting out a lot mm. of content. So is it the same quality? Is it different? I don't know, but there is content out there for sure. So. One of the things that a lot of games seem to do these days, which I quite like, is not necessarily scenarios, but uh, scenario generators. So Mm. if you look at Deadlands, if you look at Barbarians of Lemuria, if you look at a bunch of different games, uh, certainly the Free League stuff do this as well, it's having a way, it's basically having tables with things that might happen or characters or things to get or obstacles or quirks or other things, and you can roll a bunch of dice and come up with ideas for adventures. So I think that's a useful feature that we're perhaps we're perhaps double look. I think you still need as an example adventure for your game so that people know what they're trying to do roughly or at least one way of doing it. But then having a generator to go with it as some of those games I've mentioned have, that's a big useful thing as well. I think probably the other one to mention that's some good scenario support is Legend of the Five Rings. Oh yes. Which has a good starter set, which is like a training module which takes you through yeah, from having virtually nothing to being a proper samurai almost in terms of how it introduces the rules and different things. But then there's a bunch of different uh, flavours of scenario for that as well, whether they're courtly based or more adventurous or whatever it might be. Uh, another, uh, and again, I think it's you know it's coming back to that 
different setting than we're used to in the West, perhaps, because it's based in East Asia, that it's just got an extra dimension to it that you need some scenario support for, potentially, because we might not be as well read about customs or mythology or whatever it might be. So having a good set of adventures to lean into with cool features really helps. Mm. Yeah, agreed, mate. Um, it's definitely, I've always been a fan of the published adventure because I need it to show me how to play it. And, and a really good introductory adventurer is the GM's advice chapter. Um, and maybe that's why you don't always see the two of them together. Mm. Um, and I, I, you're right, mate. Quick starts are doing a lot of the heavy lifting these days, as are those kind of procedural generated games like Blaze in the Dark. Well, I don't suppose we'll ever have a scenario book, but it will have a lot of starting situations. A um, couple of pages, and then it's your game from that point, isn't it? It's just getting you going For sure. so that you have to pick it up and run. Yeah. Okay, right, so we've got a scenario in the back of the book, so we must be nearing the end, and like all good books, in the end we have a beautiful character sheet. Well, not all, there have been some notable exceptions where games forgot to put the character sheet in the game. Oh dear. Right, so the character sheet, one of the very first things I look at when I get bored reading the introduction, uh, just flick to the back of the book, it'll tell you a lot about the game, and the design of that character sheet is usually reflected throughout the whole book. So now it's time to look at the visuals, which is going to go down brilliantly on an audio podcast, as always. <laughs> so graphic design, layout, I'm really glad to see in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, that the guys who are responsible for the layout of books are getting much more uh, celebration uh, for the design of the, the function of these sometimes very big, intimidating textbooks Art has always been a major part of RPGs since day one. Uh, only Traveller decided not to do it, and well, whatever happened to that. But every other game has, has doubled down on art. Um, and the look of a book is probably more important now than ever with the way the digital publishing is done or print on demand or that kind of luxury book market. But layout and design are equally in the mix too mm. so who is inspiring us who are we going to get to make this this monstrous game of ours really look like one piece where do we go lots of opportunities lots of development opportunities here <laughs> 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 nothing's turned me off books recently more than having eight point font densely packed on pages with a obscuring background etc so let's try and do a little bit better than that uh, one of the games that's been pushing what you can do with design is mothership so mm. if, you, if you pick up like gradient descent that scenario uh, may be bewildering for some people just the way it looks but it's it, you're right there's definitely like pushing in the space now and a lot more attention being paid to it and quite right too the good thing about mothership certainly i think we can all agree on is that the character sheet's got a little flow chart on it mm. so you actually follow the steps that are written directly on the character sheet to make your character and it tells you what to do as you go along that's great so anything involving iconography and flowcharts and showing you what you should be doing and, and making it like easier to grasp rather than just words but having little pictures or icons or pointers and that thing is good. So we can certainly look back at Fate Core, which you've already mentioned, but I think yes. from a graphic design point of view, it looks really clean. And there's certain features in it that have a little icon from that it'll keep repeating so you know it belongs to that stuff or it's that kind of thing that you're doing. So that's that's definitely worth a look if you haven't got a fake core. Things like, well, basically anything that John Harper's done. I mean, just go, <laughs> go look at his stuff. Uh, from Lady Blackbird, which has minimalist uh, maps and, and um, pictures and things like that, but they're all really evocative. Uh, things like Agon, which he's done, which 
uh, is kind of an homage to what you'd see on pottery from ancient Greece but it's also a really clean in layout and has little tick boxes on the character sheet and points and things to colour in and tick off and do things and it just feels interactive and something to play with rather than just being a series of boxes it's quite cool for that sort of stuff we've had uh, Sean Tomkin on recently Starforged well worth a look for what he's been doing there or some of the people he's working with now his illustrators and, and graphic designers all look really nice um, some other friends of the show we've had Grant Howitt and Chris Taylor on who've written Spire and, uh, and follow on books for that now their artist Adrian Storm they call a picture wizard and you will see why if you go and look at the books because they're all nicely laid out fairly straightforwardly and the art looks almost comic book but stylized and it's kind of that like I think they call it block ink fill or whatever they do but so it's not overly shaded or anything but when you look at each of the pictures there's little things going on in the background there'll be a couple of guys hidden away in uh, the rafters of a building for example or a timepiece that you hadn't noticed the ground so even though they look quite minimal they're evocative everything looks the same and it's got the same feel throughout and there's lots of little details you can pick up on if you want to go dig in and admire pieces which i think is another great uh, example and then i've liked things like the one ring we keep mentioning but even though there were several artists that worked in that for example john hudson got the same sort of artists so it all fit together and looked the same and uh, even the page banners and stuff like that and the font choice were very reminiscent of talking books so that all added to the atmosphere so that's really good and just having things like the Sauron rune in the game which is like a special symbol on the dice but they made a font of it so it was in the book as well and so when you see this then this happens that kind of stuff a, a visual element rather than just text telling you what to do uh, those are my top picks for now do you want to get some in before I carry on well, there may not be any left, but <laughs> I'll see what I can do with the crumbs you've left me on the art table. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, furious agreement. John Harper, Sean Tompkin, you know, people basically, if they've been on our podcast, they've probably done a really nice looking game. <laughs> we do tend to get those guys on from Dennis Detwiller's incredible photorealistic artwork. Uh, that you can see Celia through Delta Green stuff to Johnny Hodgson's beautiful watercolours. Oh, there's so many great artists out there. And I, and I think, you know, the John Harper, Sean Tompkin kind of graphic design style, I mean, they're not the same, but you you know what I mean. And you've talked about those clean, elegant lines and the function and the formatting that goes together. They're a really big deal. I suppose what I'll do is I will go with some stuff that I just think is just beautifully presented on the page in every single way. You didn't mention it incredibly, but Tales from the Loop. The, the Simon Stalin hug. Yeah, I love you something, you see. Yeah, 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 there you go. But you left me a big one there because, you know, we've talked before about uh, the RPGs that come from the art. There are not many. Uh, Tales from the Loop is one. Uh, Iron Kingdoms by Privateer Press was another one mm-hmm. um, that started off as an art project and turned into something else. But if you flick through Tales from the Loop, whether you want to play that game, whether you don't want to play that game, it is an absolute masterpiece of graphic design. I have some training in graphic design, not very much, but I absolutely uh, respect the kind of people who look at that book and tell me just how good it is. And then when they start to explain the magic about like, you know, the thirds and the magic elements and the, 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 the way that the, the, the things are just laid out across the spreads, it is a beautiful piece of work. Um, and if you've ever tried to construct your own article scenario even a rule book you'll know what a pig it can be they make it look so easy uh free league make everything look easy it helps that they've got that kind of artwork to draw from 
but a lesser company would just like slap it on a cover and call it done and they don't do that they they really treat the art that they have with respect Simbaroon would be another ex excellent example of some of the most evocative fantasy artwork I've ever seen um, and just so beautifully presented it makes you want to read mm. uh, so you know well done to them for that I think sometimes my favourite art is and, and layout is is in the science fiction field yeah um, I really like I don't know, maybe it's just because I was a child of the 70s and science fiction paperbacks always had amazing paintings on them. Jim Burns kind of stuff for spaceships and, you know, I just love seeing a well-sketched out nebula. Um, so a game that I really like for art is Eclipse Phase, which I don't think we... We hardly ever talk about Eclipse Phase. Uh, it's definitely got its fans um, and they're, they're a, I think they're quite a hardcore of fans, really. Mm. But that's that's uh, into a second edition now. The second edition looks quite different from the first. It is quite different from the first in lots of different ways, I suppose. Um, but it still has some incredible concept pieces that really do give you that sense of awe and wonder. Science fiction's a pig of a game to run, in my opinion. We've spoken about that before, haven't we? Mm -hmm. About how difficult it is to get it going because that mind's eye thing is just so different for people. But what you want is that kind of 2001 Stanley Kubrick widescreen type thing going on where a ship comes in underneath the terminus line of a planet and you see the swirling bands around a gas giant you want to see the colour not just have it as like dark with little white dots on it Yes. Um, and Eclipse Phase absolutely does that in such an imaginative way because it's a game about uh, transhumanity uh, about how you can take your personality and upload it and download it into almost anything. A space octopus is the least weird thing in the game. <laughs> and the art really, really is very good. And you know, it's not generic art. They've actually had to go and get a proper artist and do proper art direction because that art couldn't be used in any other games because it's so eclipse phase all the way through it. Absolutely worth a look. I, I really recommend picking it up and it'll have your, your head fizzing with ideas. It's probably too grand an ambition for me to play very often. But every time I look at it, I wish my descriptive skills were as good. Thank you to uh, Virtual Tabletops. I now don't have to describe anything. I can just <laughs> slap it on a screen and it will do the job for me. So, <laughs> you know, the clips phase might see some gaming based purely on that. That's, so I love that look. And actually, that's a good point about science fiction games, actually, is that a lot of it can be the visuals and trying to put that across can be an issue. So, a Virtual Tabletop helps. I'll just quickly uh, poke in. If people haven't seen the interview that uh, Mike Pondsmith and Sean McCoy did, Mothership, Mothership even, have done, uh, they mentioned science fiction and gaming, uh, and it's well worth going and digging that out on YouTube because they've got a couple of ideas about how you might do it, and some cyberpunky stuff, obviously. So that, that's mm. that's a quick aside for our listeners. But yes, Tales from Loop, brilliant, wonderful graphic design, big, chunky, primary colour uh, page headers and titles, and just the way the the subheadings and calling out names is done and bits and pieces just looks absolutely brilliant and fantastic and you know you could go on forever with the free league stuff like the vest and stuff that I've already mentioned in terms of setting and that it just looks Victorian it's got a nice you know the fontage the particular artist that they've taken who against uh, different I can't remember his name I'll have to might have to see if I can I'll put on the show notes bless him because he deserves a shout out but he's not as famous as Simon Stollerhug in, in the gaming circles perhaps but another great uh, artist of a particular style and the other thing that really do is they carry it all the way through so there's the dice as well I mean yes, that's arguably art direction I guess or, or, or design but mm -hmm. the D6 is for 
uh, Tales from the Loop and Things from the Flood have a, like a little circle around the numbers and they just look of the time that the game's set. They just have that right feel to them. The Vesson ones have these little dots and circles and almost like they carved out of wood or something like that. It really feels like the setting and I think that's it's that attention to detail in every single aspect of the game that makes those games so evocative and, and makes you stand out for design and stuff. It, it's as you say, it's not a slap together character sheet or they've just got a Q Workshop to do some random dice and call them the official ones by mm. making them blue and sparkly. They've, they've thought about all this stuff and done it really well. And uh, yeah, I know not everybody can do that, especially if you're a one-man band sat in your shed making your game. But it, it's great for as a bar for other people to aspire to, I guess. Mm. Well, I mean, my, my last pick for, for graphic design layout and just the look of books is, is actually a one-man band. So I think it goes to show that creativity will get you a very long way in this business. Um, David Black's Black Hack, uh, and specifically Black Hack 2nd Edition, which, again, I think is hugely overlooked. Mm. I never see anyone talk about it, ever, ever, ever. Though people wouldn't stop talking about the 1st Edition, which was simply a pamphlet, really, from a design point of view. Yeah. A very nicely put together one, but it was a pamphlet. I'm sure he won't mind me saying that. The second edition is a box set, which is a rare thing in these days. A really nice box set as well, not like a serial box like you get at a Fantasy Flight game sometimes. This is one you can actually keep things in. It's got a hardback book inside it. It's got a ribbon running through that. It's got character sheets that are all of just exactly the right size to fit in there. It's deep enough to carry all your stuff. It's got little folders in it, portfolios, small little books of just the spells that you can hand to the wizard and the priest. And on the inside of the books, it's all in black and white. It's illustrated by him and him alone all the way through, as far as I could tell. So it's got like a single vision. Everything fits on either one or two page spread. Nothing particularly carries over. You never have to turn the page to finish a paragraph. It's all laid out in a way that you just open the book at the table and it's literally at your fingertips. It's so clever and I think it's massively overlooked. It's a quite a, in some ways it's a simple rules like D&D clone, but that just does it a massive disservice because it's a, it's a really nice, for once, a beginner's game that would actually make sense. It's just that as a second edition, I think it probably lost that really cheap entry point and I don't know how many people who had the first edition upgraded, but I would seriously recommend that anyone have a look at it. I wasn't a massive fan of the first edition. The second edition has blown me away from a production value point of view. Yeah. Um, so the guys who produced that, I think it's season with Square Hex, I think do a lot of the stuff for the publishing for that. I may be wrong. I'm very sorry if I have got that wrong. Um, uh, but they, they have made a really lovely piece of kit it's worth every penny it's a real one to have on the shelf it's not just going to sit there looking at you two years later and you'll never open it you really will it's worth having mm. check it out yeah yeah I, I remember seeing the, the whole package it just looks great it's a shame if it's not getting as much love as the first edition did mm. so yeah yeah for sure so while we're talking one man bands I guess I'll go back and uh, mention someone who's Bringing a few few things, Paul Boyne, but uh, Hot War we've mentioned already. Mm -hmm. He did the stuff for that. The, the cool thing about that booking from a graphic design point of view is there's lots of artifacts in there. So it's uh, posters or documents from the government or other things like that that give you the history and background and setting for the game. But it's all in player facing stuff. So that's really cool. And then he really sort of like got his, his art together uh, or, or it um, matured certainly by the time he was doing the second edition for Dead of Night, which we mentioned as well, uh, which is a horror game. But again, a lot of the art in that is posters for fake movies. 
So to give you ideas for what your game might be about, or your scenarios, there's a movie poster that you could base your scenario on, which I think is really cool. And uh, again, it's that kind of uh, putting something in the game which not only helps you understand the game and present it to your players, but is useful at the table, as well as looking nice and just being a nice thing to have. So that's uh, that's another cunning bit of design. You're informing your GM as well as giving you something for the players and generally tying the whole product together. Okay. Well, there's your Christmas list in Midsummer, all ready for you. Okay. So over this podcast and the last one, guys, I think we we probably recommended in excess of fifty games. I would think probably. so. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if I'm feeling industrious one day, I'll type it up and put it on the list, um, and we'll certainly post it up for our patrons. Um, but I think that just about rounds it up, mate. Inside a glorious cover, we won't go into cover artists because we'll be here the whole time. <laughs> we have got uh, we've got the world's biggest role playing book, but it's got the very best of the best seeded all the way through it. Is it playable? Probably not. Doesn't matter though, does it? Don't play our games. We just own them. Yeah, and as we've sort of said along, as we've been going, like take bits, be a bit of a magpie. It's worth looking at these games and just taking little chunks out of each one and uh, and using them somewhere else much like you should do for GMing you know playing other people's games and, and nick their best ideas and take hints and tips from everywhere and everyone you play with do the same with your role playing books you don't have to necessarily play Eclipse Phase all the time or even go back and relive AD&D if you don't want to but I bet if you pick some of these games up and have a flick through them there'll be little bits of gold that you perhaps didn't see at the time or well, now with the advanced years and wisdom of age you can recognise and do something with. <laughs> yeah, it used to be that if you wanted to get a really cool, unique game, you would just pull two GURP source books off the shelf. We haven't talked about GURPS. You don't have to do that anymore because <laughs> we've all got thousands of things in our hard drives. But yeah, let's pull the best bits together and include them all into the big melting pot of your game. Um, I think that it's really sound advice you've given there, guys, that you, you, know, you can't really go wrong by just pulling in some best practice from other games into your game. Don't be restricted by the two covers you've got around that book. You know, our good friend Guy always puts a skill challenge in every game, no matter what he's playing, uh, because it's a good thing to do. Um, and you, we all have those things that we picked up along the way. But sometimes worth going back to see what else is still up on the shelf that maybe needs a bit of dusting off and adding in as well. Indeed. And talking of other people that we should take things from, we, we should. <laughs> <laughs> Our patrons, thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> now in seriousness thank you very much to all our glorious patients who keep this podcast on the air by paying the internet man buying new microphones and all the other bits and pieces that keep us interested and engaged if you fancy throwing a dollar our way please go to patreon.com forward slash the smart party for the measly price of one dollar which is not even a whole english pound you'll get a monthly newsletter from us with uh, bits of scenarios in uh, quizzes uh, recommendations, reviews, advice columns, readers' letters, all kinds of stuff like that, as well as other incidentals as and when. For example, we've dropped out a couple of D&D scenarios before now. And thanks also to anyone who likes, shares, comments, gives us feedback. We do love all that stuff. I think it's worth noting in this time of the pandemic and such like that, even though it's hopefully coming to an end, all small content creators have been a little bit isolated. So if you see a favourite artist tell them their picture looks nice if you see someone else's blog give it a like and say great thanks for that you've helped me out or whatever it might be it's not just our podcast that needs the love of of course 
keep giving us the love it's what we live for but go out for all the small creators out there the one man bands that make role playing games and tell them how great they are and promote them because that's what's going to keep this hobby alive and all of us together and stronger word I may even put it in a word search more word searches for the happy patron magazine coming up soon thank you ever so much for listening it's been a pleasure as always we'll see you on the other side ciao for now Thank you.